2 Peter, I call this affirmed truth. It's, it's moving through the first chapter. Uh, we're actually building to the caution. He's, he's laying groundwork because uh, the book of 2 Peter is about warning. It's, it's the warning of apostasy. It's the warning of false teachers, uh, the reality that liars will come into the church that will look like they're from the church, that will come in and, and deceive uh, the body of Christ if they're able. And so Second Peter's writing about not being deceived, but he begins talking about what is truth and what needs to be forefront in our minds. And so we've walked through our faith and, and the foundational nature of salvation. And then we moved uh, last week, we were talking about the virtues that would be added to your faith, not that we're adding, but at supply to your faith or supplement. Um, we we're dealing with what it meant to, to live out our faith, sanctification. And this morning, we, we build from that. He says, wherefore, twice, a wherefore or a therefore, linking us back to what he's talked about. And we're going to watch um, what we can trust, what, what indicates to us what is taking place, what is the truth. I remember as a young boy growing up, uh, this, at least from my perspective, maybe my dad would say it differently, but we, we trusted the news. At least that's how I remember it. Uh, we watched, I believe it was Peter Jennings was, was the chosen one, I guess, for us. And so I, uh, there was a couple of those stalwart guys. And, and I remember as uh, a boy, my dad would go sit down, I think it was 7 p.m., and watch the nightly news. And if I wanted to feel like I was grown up, I would watch the program with him, not that I understood what was going on. But the, the essence of sitting down to the nightly news and listening to what was taking place, and, and you had the impression, at least as a child, that that your parents trusted what they were seeing, that, that, that what was viewed was seen as indeed taking place. Uh, the stories chosen maybe were indicative of a journalist's leanings, but certainly from the perspective of a child, I watched the adults watch the news, and that's how we learned about the events taking place, and we would put confidence in that. There was, in essence, the idea that the news gave the truth of the situation. It was an affirmed truth. Now, when I see the news on, I assume someone is trying to manipulate someone else. If I hear news, I'm like, okay, someone's pitching something, someone's twisting something else. And maybe uh, part of that is because the news is always on. If you walk in an airport, all they have is news. I just wish they would show cartoons or something, make it, make it enjoyable for us. But uh, I've lost any confidence that the facts are indeed presented without some distortion or even complete distortion. Most of the time I read a news article, I'm going to talk to a friend of mine or a couple friends of mine and say, I read this. Have you read this? You think this is true? There's a need to see because we, we look at it and, and the stories never seem to contain truth. Nothing seems concrete or even true, and certainly they're not worth affirming. As Peter continues in his letter, he is most certainly concerned with affirmed truth. He is concerned with pointing to eternal reality, and he is diligently prodding the church to understand and be assured of that affirmed truth. And so his concern, and remember, this letter is a letter of caution, but he is beginning with this idea of connecting with the church, and he's, and he's really zeroing in here in these verses on saying you have to understand the truth. We must build with the truth. We must have a foundation of truth. And so as he is continuing the theme of being equipped in our faith, that's what we talked about 
last week with that list of things you're going to add or supplement to your faith, being equipped in our faith, uh, add to salvation is saying not because you're making yourself more saved, but now being sanctified. He's now taking a closer look at how that equipping, that daily practice of the faith, brings assurance of our eternal reality. He follows that assurance, that, that link, with his plan for his life, which is to teach that truth until the day he dies. And he close, his close to earthly existence will be a passion to proclaim, and this is really important, the same truth he has been proclaiming, presented with urgency to the church. Peter is going to affirm this, and we'll talk about this towards the end as we get to the second half of these verses, that he is going to preach the same message he's been preaching. They need that same message, and he plans on making that his deathbed confession, the same truth presented there, not something new, not something twisted, not some new amazing enlightenment, but instead God's truth repeated and repeated, building them up in sanctification. Now, as we know, an engaged faith calls for action. And so after speaking of being fruitful and useful in this life, uh, and we talked about avoiding the pitfalls of nearsighted Christianity, Peter reconnects believers to the faith. He comes all the way back to their salvation, the starting point, and he reminds the church of how we affirm truth, how we are assured of our eternal destiny as we look at it as one writer said, from our lower perspective, from our earthly perspective. It's important to put a pause here. Your security in Christ is never in doubt in Christ. God is not looking down, wondering about anything. However, as we sit on earth, as we wrestle, so I put here, obviously, our salvation is secured in Christ from all eternity, tests resting securely in him. But we, existing in this temporal world, here we sit, are plagued with sin and a sin nature. And we can feel insecure. I put a note here, and I want this to weigh in, because this is not just about making everyone feel good about themselves. We can feel insecure, and maybe some of us should be insecure, based on our practice. Remember, he's linking 10 and 12 wherefore links right back to what he just talked about. And when he talks about what he's going to teach, it links back to what he just talked about. So are we equipped, building from the previous verses on supplementing your faith with virtue, knowledge, etc.? And so Peter says, wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure for if you do these things, the these things, by the way, is pointing back to virtue and knowledge and self-control. It's pointing back to brotherly affection. It's pointing back to love. If you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ." I didn't write this in my notes, but as I'm reading the verse, I think it's worth noting this. You're not going to earn your salvation. You're not building something or, or going to a higher tier in Christ in that sense. But we wrestle with that, right? We're saved in Christ. We don't have a work that saves us. Yet here in Peter, he's talking to the church, to believers, and he's saying, hey, get busy 
on this, on this idea of sanctification. And that, that felt comfortable to us when we dealt with the idea of being nearsighted as a Christian. You don't want to be missing. You don't want to be seeing wrong or with the wrong perspective. So add these. But here he actually hits on some very foundational components because now he says your, your sanctification, your behavior is now going to link to your feeling of security. And I'm going to push us a little forward because that's what Peter's doing. As you live out what God's called you to do, you're going to know you're saved. And, and what's interesting is you can only do those things as a believer. And so I actually feel comfortable speaking to an unbeliever and saying, go ahead, try that. Because when you fail in that, you'll realize that you need Christ. And so he says to them, give diligence. And that's the same word we talked about before, an intense effort to practice your faith, to follow through with verses five and seven. So when he says, give diligence, do what he said in five and seven and grow in sanctification specifically as God directs. I'm going to repeat that phrase over and over again. I'm not looking and God's not looking for you to perform five through seven in the eyes of man. You can dupe us, and all you end up doing is duping yourself, but you follow through with God's command in the eyes of God as before him, and I'll tell you this, as a believer, you will know you're saved, and if you try to do that as an unbeliever, you will fail, and that is, again, God's mercy and grace pointing to you, your lack of him. And so he's driving us forward to do what he says, to practice, and practice implies daily activity. And so Peter is reminding the churches that this is a core part of your life, your everyday existence. And we touched on that. Last week we said you, you, you have to do this. This is not a Sunday activity. This is a life activity. It's not just something you do every day. It's something that changes who you are. Sometimes you say, well, that's just who I am. I've, I've, I've periodically, maybe, maybe if I ever argue with Heather, I would say, well, that's, that's who I am, and you married me. You know, that's, it's your fault. Uh, you chose me this way. Um, but the fact is, is as a believer, we're not to remain who we are. I'm not to look like Kenny. I'm supposed to fade away and look more like Christ. And so that practice is talking about the core of our identity we talk about a nearsighted Christian doesn't carry the identity of a Christian. No one can know that because they always point the wrong way. Their life, no matter what their words, will always misdirect. And so he's telling us, as we know this, that you need to practice this in the core of life and everyday existence. And we see here in these verses that it is a foundational practice. The reality is this, your practice, truly being equipped meaning equipped as God directs, not as humanity judges. And I'm going to keep reminding you of this over and over. Do not think because somebody in church thinks you've followed all the virtues, that means you've had all the virtues there. But instead, as God dictates and as God judges, if you are to practice that in the faith, it will be impossible without knowing God. You cannot accomplish what he says is in five to seven without being a believer. So I put this down to help us see this. If an unbeliever attempts it in the efforts to affirm their fake salvation, even if they don't know it, their inevitable failure will reveal their primary need. 
There's some background needed here. The false teachers and scoffers, which is the point of the letter, this is the caution, spoke of their calling and election. They told the church, now we're called to this, because they had this idea of being elites. And so they would speak to the church and say, well, I know more. I've been enlightened beyond you. There's tears in their religion. Uh, If you want to find a religion similar to that, a, a lie, Scientology is one that has levels. You achieve new levels, and then it looks like a a, a sci-fi movie in the end is what it boils down to. But this is what's being taught early on in the first century church. These false teachers are, I have been chosen for this. I'm called an elect. But here's the interesting twist is that they use that as an excuse for sin. I am called to something else, and so therefore I have a license for sin. And it was used to excuse their perversion of the faith. So Peter now draws this very clean line of demarcation. They could not be so assured of faith since nothing about their life points to that reality. So he's saying that's convenient for you to say you have some extra enlightenment, but your life should look like this if you're saved. And his point to the church is don't listen to this. No matter how charismatic they are, no matter how interesting they are, no matter how good they are in front of people, no matter how many meals they give you, how much money they throw out. These people don't live as believers. And he's saying that's indicative of the fact that they are not believers. Yet when a believer practices their faith, when I say practices or attempts verses five through seven, they will succeed in Christ and it results in their assurance. So we understand that as we drive, as as I stood up here, because when I read this passage over and over again, I thought, but what if there's someone who doesn't believe and I'm driving them to a works-based salvation? Well, if I just do all the things on the list and they'll be happy. And and here's what's fascinating. That, That permeates all of society. You bump into the unsafe person on the street that believes in God, and they will always give you a works-based reason for their security of heaven. Well, I've done all this for God, and so if he don't let me into heaven, then it's his fault. Right, that works well with God. Yeah, so that's what we read in the Bible. And so they, they, we, we have a tendency to earn. We want to gain. And so as I'm looking at this passage, I'm like, well, Peter, this is going to get confusing. You, are you pushing for a works-based salvation? But he's not. He's actually saying that if you believe, you will be sanctified, you act and behave as a believer does, you will have been given by God in salvation the ability to act this way. So it is perfectly in line to say, believer, add, do this, and that that will help you, will point to, will prove to you that you are in Christ. One writer said, this is not working to retain or obtain salvation, Instead, the result is the assurance that we truly possess it. Being equipped in the faith is a foundational practice. (coughs) It's not a second tier. Well, you know, I'm a first-level Christian. You look like you're a third-level Christian, so you do those things. I've heard that one, too, from people who claim the name of Christ and I believe are saved, but they're like, well, I don't want to be that Christian. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know there was degrees of Christianity. There's not. 
If you're one of those, I'm sorry that I've popped the bubble for you. There's not degrees of Christianity. We are to be equipped. It's a foundational practice. It connects to our understanding and assurance in the faith. And then he says it's also a rewarded practice. The reward of true Christian practice as dictated by God through his word equals a rich assurance and Christian life. So Peter says as as you serve Christ, as you grow in Christ, you are reminded as you are able to do this because you cannot truly accomplish this as God dictates and as he judged, you cannot as an unbeliever do this. So as you do accomplish this and as you see that victory, what God does is he brings an assurance and then he says, I'm going to do so in a rich way, abundantly. One writer said this, abundantly is the reverse, the exact opposite of saved yet so as by fire. You want a rich entrance into heaven, the opposite of being plucked out of the burning smoke. And sadly, as I say that, I know of people who revel in the idea that they're getting plucked out of the smoke, which we talked about last week. It's nearsighted Christianity, and here's what's fascinating. The next thing Peter says is, you're not going to have any assurance. Actually, as we're driving those people in and saying, well, I had a friend of mine, and, and we've been friends a long time, and he, he neglected worship for 10 years. And uh, one time we were talking, and I said to him, I said, you're not saved as far as I know. And he got mad. How can you say that? We've been friends. I said, because you don't have anything in your life pointing to your salvation. I said, you don't have the right to be assured. And you shouldn't be, because Peter makes it very clear. We are to add these to our faith as you engage your, your sphere of influence, because it's very easy to speak from here and talk to people, right? We have a tendency to do that. But the fact is, is most people aren't listening to preaching. You guys are because you're believers and you want to know God's word. But most people in your life, if you preach at them, they're not, they're not listening. But as you engage with people in your life and you say, well, they, they said God, and I know they're a believer. I, I know that I know all their life. And this is my friend. Um, and, and, but the reality is, is I don't have any grounds to assure you. And I actually have every ground to say to you, doesn't look like you're of the faith. It looks like it's a fake thing. And and even when that confronts them, and I did this, it was in conversation. I wasn't trying, I wasn't in public. It was just he and I, but the reality is, is that's the truth. And as believers, as we embark out here, instead of making everyone we bump into a believer, how about we are discerning and saying, well, do they have what Peter said they should have to have assurance of faith? It's going to be seen in the full Christian life. I say this because it's true. Assurance of salvation is not seen in a moment. And it's not seen in the past. I know that sometimes it can hit. But the fact is this. Peter makes it clear. You know you have Christ by how you live your life. Now you might say, wow, why wouldn't God just assure people if, if they really are saved and they're nearsighted Christians? Why is assurance removed? God's mercy and God's grace 
Do I think to the core of me that my friend was lost? Well, I didn't, but biblically, that was what was revealed. So you have to address what God says to address. And that's not God being mean, that's God being gracious. Because you know what I don't want? I don't want to be assured of a salvation that I don't have. One of the most hateful thing you can do, assure a friend they're saved and not be sure of it. Because who cares if they feel good for 40 years or 80 or 120? I don't know. Maybe they live to be 150. But that doesn't help them. And so as Peter is driving us to this foundational practice, this rewarded practice, we recognize that as believers, we will behave a certain way. And that that behavior is not a manipulation of God to say, well, God, I'm adding the virtue, so you better make sure I'm saved. It's not an attaining and it's not a retaining component. Instead, as we act and grow in Christ, and as we truly recognize that that is impossible for an unbeliever, it brings an assurance to our life. And here's what I love about the other side is that rich, abundant entrance, the reward of true Christian practice is found ultimately and beautifully in the kingdom of Christ. An everlasting kingdom, not constrained to time, to politics, to loss. In his kingdom, there is no loss. There is no battle. There is no discussion. There is no debate. It's, it's a beautifully, perfectly governed kingdom. And we richly enter into that, a kingdom that is belonging to Christ. Our reward links directly to the author of our salvation. It is perfected in him and is forever reign. I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, we sing the song, King Forevermore. And sometimes we sing it and we recognize it. But do you realize that as a believer, you're serving the king of all times, that there's no other king above him? And that today we are abundantly a part of his kingdom and that we're granted that not only eternal kingdom, not just a soon to be, but it's now. And there's a beauty that we too easily as Christians forget who ultimately and eternally rules. We forget that our Savior is seen on the cross and it's, it's necessary to see him on the cross is also the king of kings that reigns forevermore. Action step is really simple, and I, I hope this is not done to put doubt in someone's heart. However, if you don't see the practices listed in 5 through 7 as someone who loves and cares for you, you need a doubt. So how assured are you in Christ? How confident are you of being his child? Now, I would be remiss if I didn't caution you, as we did last week, of the danger of nearsighted Christianity or being blind but thinking you're nearsighted because that's the other side of this. See, the nearsighted Christian, we talked about that in verse 8 and 9, they're so nearsighted they might as well be blind and they don't even see the warning that's there, the blindness that it calls, it lulls to sleep, missing the eternal warning system. I actually think that nearsighted, blind, so either you're a nearsighted Christian or you're actually an unbeliever who thinks they're a nearsighted Christian, that is the most dangerous place to be in because you see no prodding to make any change and you have no indication of whether you're in Christ or not. 
I'd be remiss to remind, but here he's speaking. He's moved from that to this. And so he's now telling you from, from this is springing all these questions from actually applying or attempting to apply the virtues of verse 5 to 7 to your life. It comes from actually living them out to God's standard, not for show, not for pretense. I'm not looking for Heather to tell me, oh, you've been very knowledgeable today, Kenny. You're doing well. You've showed good brotherly affection. You've been very... That's not, it's not for men's or women's praise. It's not for us to have accolades in church or to be viewed a certain way. It's not about our legacy. But if we live them out for, for God, for, for the purpose as dictated by Peter, doing it will assure us of who we are if we're believers. But if you sit here today and say, well, Kenny, I don't know if I'm saved. Here's the litmus test. Go ahead and try to live these virtues as God dictates them. And if you can't, you know your loss. I put here, as a believer, though, when you live these out this way, uh, to quote an author, that's really your best life now. Not the lies that are in that book, but the legit, this is living richly the Christian life, abundant entrance in the eternal kingdom. Again, I say it over and over, and I'm sorry for repeating myself, but I, I, it's such a critical thing. If you're an unbeliever, your attempt to live the Christian life as prescribed by God will result in failure, a failure that is, again, God's mercy and grace. We talk about this in Leviticus. There's a lot of rules in Leviticus. There's a lot of law. There's a lot of very specific guidelines, and, and the world looks at God's guidelines, and they say, what a dictator. We look at God's laws and guidelines. We look at the fact that God is a jealous God, and we don't see that in any way negative. We recognize His mercy and grace in that. We were designed to glorify Him. As God drives His children to fulfill their purpose, that's not a dictator. That is love in its purest and greatest form. It's mercy and grace. What is it doing? It's showing clearly that you need Christ. You need His salvation a call to realize that no human effort will ever measure up to God's holy and righteous demands. So as you attempt the Christian life, as God says it, and you see that failure, it's a call to recognize your sin and turn completely in repentance and trust on Him. Yet how in the world do we consistently apply that? How do these truths remain forefront in our minds? How can we have follow-through in this life of distractions and temptations? I think we'll all admit that I mean, we are bombarded with stimulation all around us from commercials to activities to uh, your phone to even talking about the news. You used to have to watch the news at seven. Now you get the news whenever you want. We're bombarded with distractions. How do we actually follow through with what God is saying? He's asking for this foundational thought. You see, this is of primary importance. The surety of your soul, your growth in Christ so what can be done to make that concrete in our lives? What is the plan? And Peter says it's teaching. Verses 12 through 15, it says this. Now, it's another wherefore. So he just said, by the way, all those things I listed and talk about nearsighted Christianity and being so blind or so nearsighted, you might as well be blind. Then he says, and by the way, it's foundational practice. It's going to point to the assurance of your salvation. Now he says, wherefore, because of all that, in connection to all of that I've said, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them 
and be established in the present truth. Though you're aware of gospel foundational truth, and I'm going to talk about this constantly, I'm going to keep adding brick to brick to build that out. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle in my body to stir up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I'm going to work through these. As you read that, note how many times he says always, how many times he says remembrance. If you're reading scripture, you want to see anything that's repeated. Uh, Peter's trying to make one thing crystal clear. I want you to remember these truths every day, every minute, every second for the rest of your lives. He starts, though, by helping us understand what this teaching is. And first and foremost, this teaching is a grounded teaching. Verse 12, it talks about this idea that you know them, you're established in these present truths, and he's yet going to still teach them. Uh, He's trying to make something very clear. And I want you to keep in mind who the false teachers are. Here's a false teacher standing up and saying, I have a new enlightenment. My new enlightenment says we can do whatever we want with our bodies. We can have a great old time. It doesn't affect the soul. Trust me, I have a new enlightenment for you. And Peter is saying here, you know the truth. You have the truth. You've been established in the truth. And I'm going to keep teaching you truth. It's grounded because it's not a new truth to be imparted. Instead, it's a deeper and growing understanding of existing biblical truth. Kenneth Woost notes this. He says, These saints have become stabilized in the truth and were in a state of being set fast, placed firmly on it. Their knowledge of the word and the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith were set in their thinking. And so what you see is Peter is building upon that firm foundation, growing and solidifying a faith, and this is critical, with the same materials with which they started. It's not that we get a baseline of Christianity and we move on to get our masters in Christianity and we start building with new things. Peter is saying, you're going to build with God's word. It's not going to be beyond that. And so the whole next section, as you can see in Scripture 16 through 21, is the surety of the word. So he's about to say, I'm not going to build with anything that's not already there. And then he's going to go emphasize what he builds with, God's word. That's what we'll talk about next week. So it's grounded here. And I put here, there is a need we need to recognize for a solid foundation based on truth. You cannot build your house in the mud. That's a principle from Christ, Sermon on the Mount. Some people build on nothing and there's nothing, no stability. There is a need for diligent building on what, on that with truth. So we need, from what he's saying, to be established. I, I, and then you, there's a need to build with gospel truth upon gospel bedrock truth. Yet, and this is tied into what he's saying, there is no frantic searching for a new enlightenment or hidden truth or pretending and manipulating people like there is one. That's what so many of these Sadly, authors are doing, they're grabbing scripture and they've added all this is, um, it's actually what would, I, in my generation would be called new age thinking. Uh, now it's called new spirituality. And it's guys that stand up in the pulpit. I, I've never been shy about that. Joel Olstein is a new age believer. He's as lost as he could be. He preaches 
not the Bible, but his worldly New Age philosophy. It's pulled in. He uses, he twists Scripture and then adds this on top of it. He's a false teacher. And I'm not going to call out everyone. Uh, there is a song that does it, and I can link you to it. It's a lot of fun. But either way, um, he's one of them. How about that? But what is he doing? He's grabbing a lie and he's throwing on top. And that's what Peter is pushing back. He says, we're not looking for, we're not looking for some new enlightenment. We're not looking for some new twist, new thing that makes you feel well. But instead, we recognize that there is bedrock truth. Beware of the supposed never before seen truth. But also be on the lookout for a deeper understanding of Bible truth. As a believer, you are to hold anyone that stands in front of you accountable to Scripture. Not your preference or your, your opinion, to God's Word. And don't let them budge from it, but don't let yourself budge from it. Never shy away from a deeper understanding of Bible truth, but beware of any supposed never-before-seen truth. We are called to be discerning as Christians. God, very boldly, and Peter's actually one of the, the, the apostles used to say that, and he says it, you have what you need to be discerning. We grow as a church as we come together to worship, and I hope we can grow together as we preach and study God's Word together. But in essence of saying, do you need me to be discerning? Do you need Theron? Do you need other preachers? No, you do not need them in that sense. You have what you need to be a discerning believer because you have God's Word, and God expects you as a believer to use it, and He's enabled you to use it. He's giving you the Holy Spirit to enlighten you in using His truth. You have what you need. But be on the lookout for a deeper understanding of that Bible truth. Beware of supposed never-before-seen launches from and twists of the Scripture. Peter lays the groundwork for teaching, truth built on truth, growing from the firm foundation of the gospel. And then he says it will be a constant teaching. So verses 12, again, I will put you always in remembrance, breaking that out. That's his idea. He's not going to be remiss and always putting you in remembrance. And he says, yea, I think it meet. I think it's a good idea. I think it's important. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, as long as I'm alive, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. It is human nature to be forgetful. I had in my notes, I read Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he had this whole... uh, nine-page thing on human forgetfulness, and I put my notes, see Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I figured I'd just summarize it with one statement. I think we'll get the point here. Uh, We are forgetful as humans. Nothing makes that clear like a middle school boy in chores. Let's be fair. Any aged male will make that clear. (laughs) We're forgetful. That's reality. We recognize that we need constant reminding. To put always in remembrance. Is that Peter being redundant? Is that Peter being the most boring preacher you've ever read? You're like, oh, he's going to say the same thing. He's going to say the same thing. It's not, it's not redundancy. It's not boredom. It's Bible truth repeated over and over again. I remember hearing or reading this, um, and I read a lot of John MacArthur, and, and I enjoy him. He's 83 years old, pastored for over 50 years. And I read this. At one point, he'd preached all the way through the New Testament, and the, the prevailing 
trend of the day is you're at a church for five to 10 years and you move on. And he thought, what else do I have to offer everyone? And so he's, he's kind of taking us back in time into his mind and he's praying about it. And he says, the Bible. And so what did he do? Start it over and just go all through it. Why? Because we need constant reminding. It's this principle that he applied to his life. He's sharing this to say, I'm staying at the same church. It might be the same people because they need constant reminding. We need it. Yet that constant reminding must also be an active reminding. Stirred up. One writer explains to stir up is to wake up, awaken, arouse. So metaphorically, the idea is to arouse the mind, stir up, or render active. Peter is not talking about passively leaking truth out, of gaining truth by osmosis. Osmosis is there's pressure here, there's less pressure over here, so it just seeps kind of in naturally. Uh, I used to sleep through some of my classes in college, uh, especially my soils class. Actually, I slept through biology class a lot, um, but I didn't try to. I fell asleep before it started, woke up while it was going on, and then you're groggy, and so you just go back to sleeping. But you got 12% for turning in a paper. So I, I turned in a question every time for 12% of my grade. But either way, all I have to say, you're sleeping in class. And I always went. I was not a class skipper. Uh, I may not listen, but I was there. I, I felt that attendance was important. Figured my dad paid for me to be in class, right? It's about as much commitment as I could give him. And I figured at least I'm hearing it, right? I might be sleeping, but I'm hearing it. Interestingly enough, that whole premise never works when it comes to taking the exams. If you've slept through class, you realize you've gained nothing. And the exam now becomes a fun game of guesswork. So I love multiple choice exams because at least you have a chance of getting it right. All that to say, it doesn't work for school. And it certainly doesn't work for Bible truth either. You will not accidentally seep out God's truth into people's lives, and you will not accidentally receive God's truth into your life. It requires active participation. It is active, constant teaching. And linked closely to that constant teaching is a sense of time. And this is where Peter starts talking about his death. Peter knows he's going to die It's going to be coming at any time. Jesus predicted that his death would not be of natural causes. John 21, 18, he says, Verily, verily, this is Jesus speaking to Peter, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou would. But when thou shalt be old, and Peter is old now, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. In other words, you're young and you'll go where you want to go and you're going to be used by the Lord. But when you are facing death, you're not dying of natural causes. You're going to put forth your hand and someone's going to take your hand and they're going to take you to your execution, which history uh, says that he died um, crucified, refusing to be crucified as his Lord and was crucified upside down. Uh, that's not something that's in scripture, but historical record speaks to that. And so in Peter's mind, death is fast approaching, but really what Peter knows is that death could happen at any time. So he's not feeling sick or he's feeling weak or he's kind of giving up. This is not what Peter's saying. Christ told him, when you get old, someone's going to kill you. 
And he's sitting there saying, I'm old. Nero's out killing Christians. Maybe this is my time. In other words, he had to live in this moment with the imminent death anytime he could die. And so suddenly he starts talking about urgent teaching. It's grounded. It's, it's, it's there. We, we know what it's established on. It's constant, but it's also urgent, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Yet we need to recognize that in Peter's urgency, he is still imparting the same truth. You ever read people's deathbed confessions? You, you see a lot about what was important. I've shared this before. I used to watch Spanish news to perfect my Spanish, which just resulted in a half hour of me not understanding what's going on. But I watched it. I watched, and this was the, the creepiest thing I ever saw, Hugo Chavez deathbed remarks. Nothing sounded worse than that in all my life because he was lost. And as he passed into eternity, he knew it. You read some of the most belligerent anti-God people and read their deathbed confessions and you recognize they have nothing. There was nothing in their head. They're speaking completely different than they wrote. There's guys that say, there's one that even cried out to Christ, please help me. And someone was there and said, he can. And he says, no, he can't. And then it was done. And he can't save me now. Believing a lie of Satan. Some of the most prolific writers uh, had a following that would blow your mind from the 1700s all the way through now. These belligerent people, but on their deathbed, it's not the same. It's not the same news. It's not the same man. It's not the same message. And what Peter wants to make them understand is that he's urgent about his teaching, but he's not looking for something new to say. His final deathbed words are the same Bible words he's been constantly and actively sharing. His imminent death motivates his urgency to keep sharing gospel truth. The same truth carrying them from strength to strength. Because Peter's ultimate desire is that these truths will be remembered teaching. Verse 15, if you look at that, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. While I'm alive, I'm always going to remind you so that when I'm dead, you always will remember. Peter's focus is to exhaust, to use every possibility in this life to teach them so they will not forget when he is gone. Retention or possession of truth is his ultimate goal not just in the moment, but for all of life. To put this in our life, it's not for just now. It's supposed to be forever. You can feel convicted now and cover it over with a hamburger and fries and a soda and be long gone forgotten when you get home. That's not the point of teaching. The point of teaching is this, that it is remembered, that it is life-altering forever that it is something that you possess, not just something you heard at some point. So how do we affirm truth? How are we to be equipped? Follow the plan. Recognize the need for constant and active reminding of teaching. Let me tie this in because it seems self-promoting to say, you need to be here, you need to be worshiping, you need to be listening. You do need to be. Let me extend that out. You need to be in God's word every day. You need to be reminding yourself of what truth is. You need to be diving in. You need to constantly be reminded. That's why we unashamedly will push and, and, and encourage 
you to get in God's Word. We want our children to be reading God's Word. If you have young kids, uh, challenge them or read with them the New Testament in a year. Make that a priority. Why? Because we need constant and active reminding. Recognize that the truth to be learned and taught is a grounded truth, building on the gospel foundation with gospel truth, growing from strength to strength. Recognize that the point is not an emotional response to teaching. Instead, it is a directive response. An emotional response will have you crying, will have you, you, oh, I can't believe it, it's blowing my mind, and it's okay to have an emotional response, but when it ends with emotion, it's done nothing. It needs to be a directive response. That's a remembered response. It's beyond that, the response that will shape your life and last for a lifetime. That's the response that teaching is supposed to bring. We all can get emotional. Even people like me who say I'm the tin man, I can get emotional over the simplest and silliest things, but it doesn't affect my life at all. Peter is saying that's not the point of Bible truth. It's not just an emotional movement now. It is a lifetime directive for your life. It shapes you. And I mentioned all the way back to the beginning, it's not about you being you. It's about God forming you into his image as as representing Christ. Ideally, if you had a friend 20 years ago and they saw you today, they wouldn't recognize you because you look so much more like Christ. You don't look anything like you were 20 years ago. You're not anything like you were 20 years ago. When I hear the people, oh man, Kenny, you're just the same as you were in high school. That's a spiritual kick in the gut, isn't it? Because I know how I was in high school and it wasn't the most pleasant. And you can ask my mom and dad, but they're not allowed to say that, so... If they tell on me, I tell on them. This is how this relationship works. But the reality is that we don't need and shouldn't be who we were 20 years ago spiritually. We should be more like Christ. Fading away, representing the only one that matters. As we walk this journey of life, do we walk it as believers? Peter says there's an affirmed truth. We can know with certainty our salvation And we have before us a clear plan to live this life growing in Christ to be intricately connected to the teaching of truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank for this opportunity to gather together to worship you. And as Peter is unfolding his foundational statements, as he's building from this idea that we are, are of one faith, that there's not this nuance of faith that's out there that's not a twist and turn, but, but instead we have a one faith, or as Paul says in Titus, a common faith. And then from there he builds on the idea of sanctification, growing us in him, what, what it looks like to become and to represent our Savior, to, to no longer represent ourselves, that our identity is wrapped up in Christ, and therefore people see Christ in us and not us in us. And then he, he ties in now this idea of assurance of salvation, not earning salvation, not retaining salvation, not proving to the outside world that we're saved, but instead understanding that as we strive to grow in Christ's likeness, that as a believer, we've been enabled to do so, and therefore, we'll see the fruit of that. Convict our hearts to not be nearsighted. Convict our hearts to seek for assurance, not in someone telling us, that we're saved, but instead seeing in the working of Christ in our lives that we are saved. Give us the courage to talk to our friends and family, our loved ones, 
as we don't see that, that we'll have enough integrity, spiritual integrity to say, well, based on what God's Word says, you have to wonder about your salvation, not to create doubt because that's what we're there for, but instead to mercifully have them examine themselves, to seek it out. Nothing is more important for them to know that they're saved, not from an assurance that we give, but only from an assurance that Christ gives, that we are His. Convict our hearts, prod us forward, remind us that we need to see constant truth, gospel truth, that as believers, we're left as ambassadors here. So as we need constant reminding, we also know that we're giving constant reminders. That we reach into our kids' lives and we reach into the lives of our friends and we reach into the lives of those in our church and those in our community. Help us to be broadcasting your truth. And to do that, we need to be in your truth. Give us discernment and give us insight. Prod our hearts to not just opportunities, but to turn life into a giant opportunity to glorify you and to preach and proclaim your name. In your precious and holy name, amen.